What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. In the state of Massachusetts, five people die every day from a drug overdose. Five individual lives suddenly ended due to substances they actively put inside their bodies. Often, these substances involve opiates, some of the most potent drugs available. When opiates are taken into the body, they seek out and attach themselves to opioid receptors within the brain and spinal cord. In doing so, the body receives a pain-relieving effect and often in cases of opioid misuse, feelings of euphoria. It is this process that keeps opioid users within the grips of addiction and always craving more. It's a powerful mix of physical and psychological dependence on a substance that can obliterate lives. But this story is not about the death of a drug user. It's about the death of a dependent, a young child who relied entirely on the adults around her to provide care love, and safety. She was a little girl who was desperately failed. Deep-seated drug addiction is an ongoing cycle that has impacts extending far beyond just the addict themselves. Their behaviors, decisions, and actions can never be reversed. Once made and carried out, they can never be taken back. Listener, the story you're about to hear is rooted in drug addiction. Dependence on opioids and prescription medication that disengages the users from feeling any sense of responsibility, either morally or socially. Without heroin, clonopin, 
suboxone, and benzodiazepines. This devastating case may never have happened, but it did happen, and the life of an innocent girl was brutally taken as a result. In attempts to escape responsibility, the two adults at the center of this case entered into repetitive lies and a dark game of blame. In 2015, the discovery of a child's body on a secluded area of beach sparked a quest to find the child's real identity and who was responsible for her death. The death of a young child is a tragic event. The death of a young child due to murder is an event that lights a fire under all involved to seek the truth and achieve justice for that child and a life they have lost. Justice is not a straightforward concept in this case, as you will hear. I will leave it up to you, listener, to decide for yourself if justice, in this case, was truly achieved. Now, let's get on with it. Part 1. Baby Doe On the afternoon of June 25th, 2015, Bonnie Flynn was walking her dog at Deer Island in Boston, Massachusetts. At 265 acres in size, Deer Island is home to the Deer Island Wastewater Treatment Plant, surrounded by 60 acres of parkland including miles of pathways and trails for walking and exploring. Standing on the edge of the island gives views across the water to the city of Boston just over 5 miles away. As Bonnie walked along the shoreline on the western edge of the island, her dog found what she thought was a trash bag. When she went over to take a closer look, she realized that the discovery was entirely more sinister. Bonnie Flynn made a call for help, and a fellow walker dialed 911. Inside two black trash bags lying on the shoreline was the body of a young child. Within minutes, detectives from the Chelsea office of Suffolk County State Police arrived to see for themselves. Homicide Detective Dan Herman was one of the first on the scene. He would be the detective who would go on to lead the hunt to find the identity of this child. As he looked inside that bag and down on the bare feet of the little girls inside, he thought of his own four-year-old toddler. As the small section of Deer Island, secluded behind a row of shrubs and an embankment, Filled with emergency workers, further police officers from the state police, crime scene investigators, and firefighters, Herman named the unidentified little girl Baby Doe. Baby Doe was thought to be no more than four years old, with brown eyes and long brown hair. She was wearing white leggings with black polka dots and was wrapped up in two blankets, one with a black and white zebra print pattern. As medical examiners arrived at the scene, Dan Herman and a colleague, State Police Sergeant Scott Holland, puzzled over what happened to this child. There were no visible injuries to her small body. She looked well cared for. She was not malnourished and there were no outward signs of trauma. They would need to wait until autopsy to find out how she had died. The priority for police detectives was to find out who this little girl was and give her back her identity. They needed to find out her name and what happened to her. Someone had placed her body in these bags. At these early stages, they didn't know if her body had washed up on the beach through the tides or if Baby Doe had been dumped where she had been found. Dan Herman contacted the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children for help. They scoured their records for any missing children who may match Baby Doe's description. 
At the same time, their forensic artist Christy Andrews began preparing to create an image composite that could be released to the public. She had very little information to work with. Baby Doe had been in the water for some time. Her features now unclear due to decomposition. Her fingers were too damaged to yield fingerprints and there were no clues to her identity inside the bags or blankets she had been found in. Within days, her DNA had been checked and there were no matches on the national database. Dental records also failed to provide her identity. Pollen tests on the small particles found on her clothing were able to determine that the child had been in local areas. This told them Baby Doe was local and gave fresh hope that someone in the city of Boston knew the answers. The autopsy on Baby Doe was unable to determine an exact cause of death. Her body was free of disease, and toxicology tests ruled out any ingestion of substances that could have caused her death. The bruising to her body, on her elbows, back, and abdomen were confused by the decomposition that was also discoloring her skin. The medical examiner, Dr. Henry Niels, could not say the extent of these bruises, when or even how they may have been caused. He was only able to say this little girl most likely died from strangulation or suffocation. To find out the truth of what happened to her, police first desperately needed to find out who she was. Using information from the autopsy, Christy Andrews set to work on the composite image. It was painstakingly created in Adobe Photoshop across more than four hours, giving as close a likeness to what they thought Baby Doe looked like as possible. The final image was striking. The piercing brown eyes of a beautiful little girl looked out, asking to be identified, for her name to be found, and for her story to be told. A haunting image moving millions of people. A beautiful girl with chubby cheeks and big expressive eyes. But this is not a photograph. It's a computer-generated image. She's known only as Baby Doe. The body of the four-year-old was found in a garbage bag on a beach in Boston Harbor last month. It's very sad to look at these images. Forensic artist Christy Andrews of the Center for Missing and Exploited Children was given the heartbreaking autopsy photos and asked by law enforcement to recreate Baby Doe as she might have looked in life. She was too decomposed to use the photos that we received. She showed Inside Edition how she created the face that has now been viewed 50 million times online worldwide. I'll choose a face shape that I feel is similar to the deceased. She adds eyes matching the size and color of the dead child's. Then it's really just piece by piece, um, finding a nose. Each facial part is going to be individually manipulated. And Baby Doe's face gradually comes to life. She was found with a red hair tie, but it came back later from the ME that she had longer hair, almost as long as mine. Earrings were added after the medical examiner discovered Baby Doe's ears were pierced. Someone out there knows who she is and what happened to her. And thanks to the work of this artist, we now know what the little angel known as Baby Doe looks like. We don't know where their family is, um, we don't know what happened to the child. You know, they're, they're a number. We don't want them to be a number. For 85 days, teams of investigators worked tirelessly. Thousands of flyers were printed with the composite image and the limited information they had and distributed around Boston and surrounding areas. Press appeals ran on a loop appealing to anyone with any information to come forward. For lead after lead, investigators hit a brick wall 
they were beginning to wonder if Baby Doe would ever be identified. Finally, in mid-September, they would get that one piece of information they had been searching for. Baby Doe's real name. Rochelle Bond. 18 miles away from where Baby Doe's body had been found on Deer Island, 40-year-old Rochelle Bond was drifting from day to day in a haze of illicit drugs and heroin abuse. Despite her dysfunctional lifestyle, Rochelle cannot have failed to see the news items on Baby Doe, the flyers and posters that had been distributed everywhere with a beautiful toddler's face staring out appealing for help. Living with her boyfriend, 35-year-old Michael McCarthy, who was equally gripped by drug addiction, Rochelle Bond said nothing. Michael McCarthy also said nothing. You see, they knew who this child was. They knew her identity and her name. And they knew because they had dumped her body. Rochelle Bond had a long history of drug addiction, homelessness, criminal convictions, and short spells behind bars. Her life was a chaotic freefall of drugs taking priority over everything else. But it wasn't always like that. In 2011, while homeless, Rochelle met Joseph Amoroso. They quickly became close and joined the hordes of people who were camping at Occupy Boston from September to December that year. These were a group of protesters who were protesting economic inequality through camping on Dewey Square opposite the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. It was in one of those tents that their daughter was conceived. When Rochelle discovered she was pregnant, Joseph realized he had to get clean and sort out his life. The pair found themselves a place at a local shelter, and Joseph checked himself into a drug program. Rochelle chose not to do the same, but while he was in treatment, she was arrested on outstanding warrants for prostitution and drug charges. She received a one-month prison sentence for violating her probation. When Joseph left treatment, he kept in touch with Rochelle, but soon met someone else and left the area for Florida to start a new life. Rochelle returned to the shelter on her release from prison and prepared to bring up her baby on her own. This was not the first time Rochelle was to be a mother. She had two older children, two boys who between 2003 and 2006 had been taken by Child Protective Services due to her drug use and concerns over child neglect. She had lost all parental rights to those children and was determined this would not happen with her new baby. Rochelle gave birth on August 6, 2012 in Boston Medical Center, with Joseph listening to the birth of his daughter via speakerphone from Florida. They named their daughter Bella, Bella Nevea Amoroso Bond. Returning to the shelter for the first few months of Bella's life, Rochelle wanted to build a proper life for her and her daughter but she didn't manage to resist her drug addiction and continued to use sporadically. Before Bella was one years old, Children and Family Services had received two reports of concern over Bella's welfare. Both had come from Joseph Amoroso. Talking to Rochelle on the phone, he could recognize when she was under the influence. He knew that lifestyle, and he was worried about his child. Those reports, according to DSS, were investigated but it was deemed no action was required. Around Bella's first birthday, in August 2013, Rochelle was given an apartment by the housing department. 
a two-bedroom home at 115 Maxwell Street in Dorchester. On the ground floor, the apartment provided a secure environment in a three-story building with a wooden porch around the front door and red-painted wooden slats that gave way to gray on the upper floors. This apartment for Rochelle was an opportunity for change, a chance to lay down firm roots and get into a healthy routine for baby Bella, providing her with the stability, love, and nurture that a baby needs. The initial signs were good. Rochelle decorated the apartment, focusing on Bella's room. She painted it purple and filled it with Bella's favorite cartoon characters and toys. She brought Bella into the apartment with good intentions to live a better life. These were intentions, though, she couldn't stick to. Many of Rochelle's friends and acquaintances were still on the streets and still ravaged by drugs. She would invite them to the apartment and let them stay for a while. Her neighbor, Yessi Omara Torres, who lived in the apartment next door with her own child, could hear through the thin walls of the apartments. Various people coming in and out, sometimes loud chatter, other times Bella crying. Bella's life was a revolving door of different adults, almost all drug addicted. Despite this instability, everyone who knew Bella said she was a happy, chatty, and friendly little girl. She was playful and bright, interacting with those around her, always looking for fun and laughter. She was a girly girl. She loved Hello Kitty, pink and purple, and by the time she was two years old in August 2014, her strong personality was already shining through. Earlier that year, Rochelle Bond was regularly attending a methadone clinic in the South Bay area of Boston. It was a clinic within the well-known methadone mile stretch of Boston, an area overcome by drug use and a hotspot for drug users, which overlaps with dozens of drug clinics, support services, and needle exchanges. In Boston, this is the area the drug-addicted flock to, both to take drugs and to get off them. Rochelle was taking prescription clonopin. This was to treat her anxiety. She was also taking Suboxone, a drug prescribed to treat opioid addiction in an attempt to control the cravings. She was known to sell both of these medications when she needed extra cash. One day, she met a man called Michael McCarthy outside her regular drug clinic. Scruffy, unkempt, homeless, and drug-addicted, Michael asked Rochelle for drugs, seemingly in the grips of withdrawal. Rochelle gave him some of her clonopin to ease his symptoms. They got chatting and exchanged numbers. It was a meeting that would set the course of Bella Bond's life. Michael McCarthy's life had echoed the path of Rochelle's. While he had a more stable home life, educated at a Catholic school, by his late teens, he began taking drugs. Experimentation which developed into heroin addiction by his mid-20s. In 2011, Michael had a seizure and fell, causing significant injury to his left shoulder. He required surgery and insertion of a metal plate to correct the damage. His seizure condition was ongoing, and he eventually got a Pomeranian dog called Bailey, who was able to alert him as a seizure was coming on, helping him to prepare and prevent further injury. This dog went with him everywhere. Although still in contact with his family, Michael was unable to escape his addiction to drugs. Michael's father had a plumbing business, and Michael took qualifications to help his father but it was ultimately his older brother who took over the business once his father retired. Months passed with no communication between Rochelle and Michael, 
until he texted her one day, out of the blue. Once again, he was looking for drugs, and again, Rochelle obliged. It was winter, snowing and cold outside. Reasons Rochelle felt to give Michael her address and invite him over. In less than two hours, Michael was at her door, and really, he never left. Bella now had a new individual in her daily life, who was there when she woke up in the morning, and when she went to bed at night. One day at the beginning of June 2015, two-year-old Bella Bond disappeared. No one knows the exact date this little girl vanished. This bright and happy little toddler was no longer at the apartment at 115 Maxwell Street. Yesi Omara Torres next door stopped hearing Bella through the walls, stopped seeing Rochelle in the hallway with Bella in her buggy. Rochelle and Michael carried on living their lives as if nothing had changed. But there was a change. Rochelle's daughter was nowhere to be seen. As people began to notice and ask questions about where Bella was, Rochelle told them she had been taken away by Child Protective Services. That, like her other children, the Department of Social Services had swooped in and removed little Bella from her care. This did not come as a surprise to those who knew Rochelle and Bella. Many also knew DSS had been involved with Bella at least twice since she was born. Bella being removed from Rochelle's care for her own welfare was a plausible explanation of where she was. Michael told the same story that Bella had been taken by the DSS, was living with a family member. Michael's childhood friend, Michael Sprinsky, had stayed at the apartment for periods since Michael had moved in with Rochelle. Battling a drug addiction himself, he had witnessed Michael and Rochelle taking drugs together, and he too asked where little Bella was. He was told Bella was with Rochelle's sister. Months later, that story changed, and he was told Bella had in fact been taken by DSS. Rochelle and Michael continued their life of drugs, with their drug abuse appearing only to escalate in the absence of the child. For three months, few realized the true story of what had happened to Bella Bond, and sadly, few even questioned it. Part 2. September Truths On September 9, 2015, Joseph Amoroso, Bella's real father, unexpectedly arrived at Rochelle's apartment. He had kept in touch with Rochelle, receiving pictures of Bella as she grew and talking to his daughter on the phone. But since Christmas, the contact with Rochelle had stopped. She had stopped sending him pictures and didn't answer when he called. Joseph had yet to meet his daughter in person, and he had decided now was the time he wanted to build a full relationship with his little girl. He had been clean from drugs for three and a half years, but he knew the lifestyle Rochelle was still in and what Bella was being exposed to. Joseph didn't have Rochelle's address. He arrived in Boston and spoke with old friends in homeless areas he knew still existed. People who knew him knew Rochelle and Bella. Eventually, he found out Rochelle was living in an apartment on 115 Maxwell Street. On the night he arrived, Rochelle was shocked. She refused to let him into the apartment. Rochelle looked under the influence. Her words were slurred, and she didn't look healthy. Bella was staying with her godparents on Cape Cod, she told him, a peninsula about 60 miles away from Boston City, and she wouldn't be back for at least a month. 
Joseph was immediately suspicious. Bella didn't have godparents. He pressed Rochelle for more information. What was their address? How could he contact them? Rochelle was unable to give him answers. Unconvinced by her story, Joseph persisted, maintained he wanted to see his daughter, that he wasn't going away. A week later, on September 16th, Michael was due to have surgery on an abscess he had on his wrist, and that morning started the hunt for a hospital to carry out the surgery. Michael, Rochelle, and Michael's childhood friend Michael Sprinsky traveled to the Boston Medical Center together that day. While McCarthy stayed at the hospital, Rochelle and Sprinsky went to run some errands. But Michael Sprinsky found himself in a conversation with Rochelle he could have never predicted, and it would be a conversation that would change his life. Rochelle told a horrified Sprinsky that Bella was not safely in the custody of the DSS. She told him Bella was dead, and it was Michael McCarthy who had killed her. Sprinsky sent text messages to his lifelong friend. Tell me it isn't true, he asked. The response he got was not to listen to Rochelle, that she was crazy. Sprinsky couldn't shake the feeling of dread he had over him. He spoke to his sister, told her what Rochelle had said to him. Laura Sprinsky immediately thought of the Baby Doe poster she had seen. She told her brother to look up Baby Doe online, look at that forensic image and see if it could be Bella. Michael Sprinsky will never forget that moment. He saw the image. The same moment the realization hit him with full force that Bella Bond had been murdered and it was her little body that had lay unidentified for the past three months. Laura Sprinsky contacted police and told them what her brother had told her. Her brother went to Rothbury District Court where he knew a probation officer needing to tell someone in authority what he had been told. Massachusetts State Police sent homicide officers to interview Michael Sprinsky. It was then that the connection was finally made. Baby Doe was two-year-old Bella Bond. Police Involvement Massachusetts State Police now had the key information they had spent months searching for. The true identity of Baby Doe and their first saw it leads on who had harmed her. Now they just had to track down Rochelle Bond. On the evening of September 16th, after Rochelle had made her confession to Michael Sprinsky, Joseph once again arrived at her apartment, asking to see his daughter. His sobriety had been broken, and he had been drinking in the hours before. Rochelle wouldn't let him in, said she would talk with him. He gave her his mobile number. The following day, Rochelle did call him, wanting to talk. She was at the Boston Medical Center with Michael McCarthy, and Joseph went to meet her. She was sober, he thought, but seemed frantic. They went to Massachusetts Avenue along the Methadone Mile, an area they both knew well. They sat and talked about Michael McCarthy and how she was unhappy with him, about Bella who Rochelle told him was safe and being looked after. That night, they went to South Boston, on a grassy area, under a tree next to the Four Point Channel. They continued to talk. They slept that night on the grassy bank, within direct eyeline of the spot across the Black Falcon cruise terminal, that unbeknown to Joseph, was where his daughter's body had been dumped in the water 
three months earlier. Early the next morning, on September 17th, Rochelle told Joseph she had a therapist appointment, but wanted to first return to her apartment to shower. While she was there, she saw through her window the police entering into her apartment building. She knew they were coming for her. Instead of opening her door to the police, Rochelle chose to run and climbed out a window in the back of the apartment onto the back porch to escape the police. She returned to Joseph who was waiting at the Ashmont subway station. It was then that finally, Rochelle told him his daughter was no longer alive. Later on, listener, you will hear Joseph Amoroso describe the moment he was told his daughter was dead. Rochelle and Joseph went to Boston Common, where they purchased heroin and snorted the drug together. Joseph then took Rochelle to his mother's home in Lynn, 13 miles away. Joseph's mother had spent time with Bella many times when she was a baby. When they arrived, he discovered the police had already been there looking for him. They didn't tell Joseph's mother until the following morning that two-year-old Bella, her granddaughter, had been murdered. Tracking their mobile phones, the police arrived within hours and arrested Rochelle Bond. The day was September 18, 2015. Over three months since Bella Bond had disappeared, and the city of Boston had been working together to identify the young child's body, found on Deer Island they had affectionately named Baby Doe. This was the day when state police began to hear the first details of who Bella Bond was, what had happened to her, and who was involved. On that morning, Rochelle Bond gave her account to police of what happened to her daughter. It was an account that placed Michael McCarthy as her daughter's killer. She told officers that one night, in early June, when Michael was helping to put Bella to bed, Michael had murdered Bella before threatening to kill her if she said anything. In a haze of heroin and under threat from Michael, Rochelle said she'd been forced to accompany him to Fort Point Channel where she had weighted Bella's body down in the water. The following months, she said, were clouded by drugs. She was scared, unable to tell anyone the truth out of fear of Michael. According to Rochelle Bond, yes, she had been part of disposing Bella Bond's body. She was an accessory after the fact, but she did not kill Bella. Michael McCarthy did. After taking Rochelle's statement, state troopers went to the Beth Israel Hospital where Michael McCarthy was finally being accepted for surgery and was awaiting his operation. He was interviewed inside the hospital as the main suspect in the murder of Bella Bond. All right, so back back to um, Maxwell. You said people, would people come and go and stay. Is it a one-bedroom apartment, two-bedroom apartment, or what? Uh, two-bedroom apartment. So what was the first... First bedroom was what your bedroom? No, the, the first bedroom, like we, I basically stayed on the couch. Yeah. Like a, a lot. Yeah. And so, but so would she. She would like stay on the other couch. Almost no one would stay. Yeah. In the first bedroom, and then the back bedroom was her daughter's. Oh, okay. But her daughter got taken by DSS. It's like her fourth kid that's been taken by DSS. Really. Yeah. How many kids does she have? She had four kids? From what she tells me. Really? Yeah. What? I haven't, I haven't known that that one. Trooper Joel Baducci from Suffolk County Detective Unit led the interview with Michael. 
Initially, Balducci didn't tell him that they knew Bella was dead and that Rochelle had been talking to them. They wanted to know what he would say. So did you did you just so sometime after Easter? Yeah, it was definitely after Easter. Did she have to go to court or anything, or did you just come home and the baby and and, and the baby Bella was gone? See, I, I I'm not sure. I, I don't have babies. Yeah. I'm not sure how it works. Yeah. Um, but R- Rochelle's had, from what I understand, of all of her kids yeah. taken from DSS, and she told me that. Um, the guy said, so we can either, like, do this the nice way or the hard way. Like, I can either take the baby now or I can show up with a bunch of cops. And Rochelle, the, Rochelle told you that? She said that, yeah, yeah that's what the guy said, so, yeah. Did, did Rochelle ever, does she ever try to go see Bella anymore or no? No, which I kind of, I don't want to say I thought it was strange, but... It was just kind of like, um, you know, whenever I'd bring it up, she wouldn't want to talk about it. She would just not want to talk about it at all. What you asked, what what do you mean bring it up how? If I would say like, you know, are you working on getting Bella back at at all? And she would just kind of be like, listen, I've been through this before plenty of times. Once they take your kids, you don't get them back. You don't get them back. And, you know, I hate arguing especially with females so I would just kind of let it go yeah you know I could tell she was already pretty wound up and you don't know where Rochelle is now I would guess at her house Michael McCarthy told the officers he returned to the apartment one day after Easter and Bella was gone Rochelle told him that she'd been taken by DSS he had believed her Trooper Balducci then moved on to confronting Michael with the information they had from Rochelle and with the fact that Bella was dead. You're doing great. I'm telling you right now, you're doing great. You know, the whole interview was going great until I sort of confront you with some things that, that, aren't, that I don't believe aren't truth. You know? So, again, something happened to the little girl, okay? And even, even, even things that you said about the apartment, those aren't true. We've already been to the apartment. What things about the apartment? I'm not sure. Listen, I'm, tell, I'm trying to tell you little bits of information that I know to show you that I'm not in here jerking you around. I'm here to get your side of the story of what happened to Bella. And now is your chance to tell us. And I, told, and I told you everything I know the best of my recollection. If that apartment is different, maybe you guys were in the wrong apartment. Uh, because what I said again is you go to the front door, the living rooms to the left, then the front bedrooms behind that, then you walk and the kitchen's out there, yeah, and then no, the I'm bathrooms not, after that, that, and the Mike, bedrooms. Are... Mike, I'm worried about where Bella is. Yeah, now I am too, yeah. because he's, that, I'm in told Mike, she's been in DSS. Mike, do you understand what he's saying, though, when he says Rochelle's talking and giving more information than you are? Do you understand what that means? Yeah, I've seen enough. Well, I've seen enough TV to have an idea what that means. This is a TV. I know it's not TV, but I'm just saying to understand what that means. But I can't. What he means when she says that she's talking and she's giving a totally different story than what you're giving, and we're giving you a chance to give your side of the your version of the story. I'm giving my truthful side of the story. Why? Why would Rochelle answer me this? And I'm asking you this other question. Why would Rochelle tell us that you hurt her baby? 
maybe to cover her own ass if she was. There's nothing else I can think of. Why would Rochelle let me hurt her, baby? I, I'm asking you. We're asking you that question. We were there. Doesn't make any it sense. It doesn't make any sense to us why she would just pull your name out of a hat and say, Michael McCarthy hurt my baby. Maybe because I was the only one around. Yeah. No one else was really around. She doesn't have too many friends. Yeah. I mean, if something... If something went wrong or something while you were watching the baby or she was watching the baby or if something went sideways and things happened and it was an accident or, or, or what happened or it was just a spanking or something. What was it? I don't, I'm trying, I'm, 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 I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, Mike. I'm just trying to figure out. I can't comprehend how a child like that could get hurt, killed, killed, right? Killed? She's, you don't know she's dead? No. You don't know Bella's dead? No. Really? No. Huh. She's not? Not to my knowledge. Are you sure? Positive. You didn't drive over to East Boston? No. Southie? Southie? No. Boston Harbor? No. No? No. Mike, we've been handling this investigation for months. It's been all over the news. We're here right now talking to you. This this is not this is not some sort of we're homicide detectives. Okay, we've been doing this for a long time. Okay. Okay? This is the real deal. This is your chance to get out from under this. Okay, we know what went went wrong. We know what happened to Bella. I don't think you do know what happened to Bella. She's sitting there basically saying I did something, so you don't know what happened to her. Then you tell me what happened to her. I have no idea. detective came and knocked on the door and I said is it Renee and he just gave me that solemn look it was the worst day ever the proof podcast is back with a new case and a new season 23 years ago 18 year old Renee Ramos went missing her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town I don't think that they arrested the right people it's about time somebody's trying to do something she had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? 
Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. The Cooperation Agreement. Michael McCarthy was maintaining he knew nothing of what happened to Bella. That he had believed Rochelle when she told him Bella had been taken by Child Protective Services while he was away from the apartment. Rochelle Bond was providing a different version of events. She didn't tell anyone earlier, she said, as he had kept her hostage, kept her eye on drugs, but she had welcomed to block out the pain of her daughter's death. The police had a decision on their hands. Which story do they believe? There was no forensic evidence that linked Michael McCarthy to the murder. Bella's body had been submerged in water for weeks. There was no DNA, no fibers, or anything linking Bella's body to Michael or Rochelle, indicating they had been involved in her death. Michael's own version of events was simple. He said he didn't know Bella was dead. The medical examiner didn't find evidence of physical harm to Bella. She didn't have head injuries or broken bones or bruised organs. There was no conclusive evidence of how she had died that could point to a theory of what had happened to her. The decision was made by the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office to believe the account of Rochelle Bond. They felt their investigations had found enough evidence to support her account over that of Michael's. Late afternoon on September 18, 2015, Suffolk District Attorney Daniel Conley gave a press conference. Her name was Bella. Based on interviews and evidence recovered pursuant to multiple search warrants executed during the past 24 hours, the child that we all came to know as Baby Doe has been identified as Bella Neva Amoroso Bond. She was about two and a half years old when she died and was a resident of Dorchester. Pending DNA comparisons, uh, pending DNA comparisons are still necessary for scientific certainty, but we are extremely confident in this identification. Eighty-five days ago, Bella's body was found in a trash bag on Deer Island. We hoped against hope that her death was not a crime, but the evidence carefully and professionally gathered by the men and women who worked on this investigation suggest otherwise. This child, whose very name means beauty, was murdered. In light of the evidence that we have developed, I have authorized the arrest of Michael Patrick McCarthy, age 35, for Bella's murder. McCarthy is currently hospitalized for a medical condition unrelated to this case. Bella's mother, Rachel D. Bond, age 40, has been placed under arrest as an accessory after the fact to murder. Based on the facts and the evidence developed thus far, which are consistent with the medical examiner's findings, we allege that McCarthy caused Bella's death, that he did so intentionally, that he and Bond took specific steps to keep Bella's death a secret and to avoid prosecution. We expect that both defendants will be arraigned on Monday morning in the Dorchester Municipal Court. While Rochelle and Michael were appearing in court at their arraignment hearing, Scott McKenzie from the Massachusetts State Police Underwater Recovery Team was searching the seabed at the spot authorities believe Bella's body had been left in the water. 
His orders were to search the reserve channel of Boston Harbor directly, cross from the Black Fountain Cruise Terminal for any items that may be related to the case. Within five minutes, Scott McKenzie discovered a large green military-style duffel bag and two barbell weightlifting plates. One was 10 pounds in weight, the other 25 pounds. After taking photographs of their locations on the seabed, he gently brought them to the surface to be bagged and marked as evidence. This, however, is not where this part of the story ends. Rochelle Bond was offered a cooperation agreement by the DA's office. Rochelle agreed to plead guilty to accessory after the fact for Bella's murder and to a charge of larceny for continuing to claim benefits for Bella after she knew she was no longer alive. She testified against Michael McCarthy at his trial. She would receive time served and two years probation and be released from jail into a drug rehabilitation program once the trial was over. Whether the jury found Michael McCarthy guilty or not of Bella's murder, Rochelle Bond would not serve any further prison time for her role in her daughter's death. It was a decision by the DA that many members of the public and Bella's extended family did not agree with or feel was fair. Guilty plea from the mother of the murdered two-year-old once known as Baby Doe, Bella Bond's mother, striking a deal that could get her out of jail. Tonight we are hearing from relatives of Bella. News Center 5's Julie Lonchek is live at Deer Island where Bella's body was found. Julie, good evening. Good evening to you, Ben. Rochelle Bond would have served more than a decade for pleading guilty to accessory after the fact of murder. Now she'll be out by year's end. It's not fair. It's not right at all. Patricia Quinn had looked forward to Rochelle Bond's trial when she believed she would finally see justice for her two-year-old granddaughter, Bella. She's getting away with this? She saw the whole incident, and she didn't defend her own baby? How do you plead? I don't know. On Friday, the child's 41-year-old mother changed her plea to guilty in exchange for what the Commonwealth calls essential testimony against her former boyfriend and alleged killer, Michael McCarthy. She should be doing life. I was just able to see her for nine months, and she took her away from me. How dare her, you know? Part 3. The Trial At just shy of three years old, Bella Bond was a true innocent. And the tragedy of her death is compounded by the fact that her short life ended not by illness or accident, but we believe by an act of violence in the very place where she, had, where she should have felt safest, in her home. Sadly, this is the case for too many victims of child abuse whose tiny voices are silenced. But we will speak for her and on behalf of her and seek justice for the crime that took her life. On May 30th, 2017, two years after Bella Bond was killed, the murder trial of Michael McCarthy began at Suffolk County Superior Court in Boston. For the first time, the two sides of the case were to be laid out in full, with the public words of his boss assuring a voice for Bella still echoing in his mind Assistant District Attorney David Deacon, the Chief of the Family Protection and Sexual Assault Unit, opened the prosecution case against Michael McCarthy. Despite the questions and the outrage by some at the decision to give Rochelle a plea deal, the state prosecutors remained adamant. Without Rochelle's evidence, there would be no trial, no justice at all. They believed Rochelle's version of events, and this cooperation agreement, they said, 
was the only way to try and ensure a conviction against Michael McCarthy, a man they claimed was the real killer. When this case came to trial, it was clear it was going to be based on blame. Two adults, whose lives were both driven by heavy drug addiction, blaming each other for the senseless murder of a two-year-old little girl. On one side was Rochelle Bond, a mother who had lost custody of two older children to DSS, and now who claimed Michael McCarthy had murdered her daughter. Her story tells of a discovery that Michael had killed Bella, a frantic effort to revive her daughter, and then descent into a drug-fueled haze in the days and weeks that followed. Under his control and manipulation, her account of what happened was the foundation of the prosecution's case. On the other side was Michael McCarthy. He maintained his story from his first police interview. Bella, he said, disappeared one day and believed what he was told by Rochelle Bond. Michael McCarthy would not take the stand in his defense. There was no explanation from the defense on how Bella ended up in that reservoir. Her body wrapped in black trash bags and weighted down. His defense relied entirely on the premise that he knew nothing, and therefore, the real killer must have been Rochelle Bond. In the prosecution's opening statement, the motive they believed drove Michael to murder Bella Bond was revealed. Rochelle had told state police that after Michael had killed Bella, he had told her Bella was a demon and it was her time to die. Michael had an obsession with demons, evil spirits, and the occult. The prosecution would say, This had tipped over into the murder of a two-year-old child. Prosecutor Deacon then directly addressed the second burning issue of this case. Why Rochelle didn't report the murder immediately. Why, as a mother, she didn't call the police when her daughter was murdered by her boyfriend. Intimidation and violence by Michael, coupled with a haze of illicit drugs and heroin, was Deacon's explanation and Rochelle's. His bond will come before you and she will explain her conduct in the minutes, hours, days, and weeks that followed her daughter's murder. And I expect she will testify and the evidence will show that she didn't report that murder immediately because she was afraid of the defendant who had just killed her daughter, who had just strangled her, and who in the weeks afterwards was both verbally and physically abusive to her. I also expect that she will testify that she was afraid that not having reported the murder in the immediate aftermath of the crime, that people would ask her questions that she simply couldn't answer. What would she say about why she didn't report the murder? It was the tyranny of a single decision in a single chaotic night. Many of you, perhaps most or even all of you, will be asking, how could a mother, regardless of the defendant's violence or threats, how could a mother not report a murder in, immediately? Many, perhaps most or all of you, will ask, how could she live with that guilty secret for days and weeks and months after the crime? These are valid questions, and they're questions with which you will have to wrestle. And you will have to answer these questions based on all the evidence that you will hear in this trial. And I suspect that at the end of the case, you will conclude that Ms. Bond was at root trapped. Trapped by the defendant's violence, his intimidation and control, but also trapped by her decision to give in to that intimidation 
violence and control. And I expect that you will hear evidence of the ways in which her drug use contributed to that decision to give in to the, his intimidation and control. And at the end of the day, you will hear that she used heroin to put herself in a state of numbness where she could feel almost no pain at all. Michael's defense attorney was Jonathan Shapiro, a top-rated Boston and New York lawyer. Shapiro is a seasoned criminal attorney and was part of the defense team who got Muhammad Ali's felony conviction for failing to enlist in the army overturned. He would present a passionate defense presenting that Michael was innocent of this crime. Michael did not kill Bella, he said. Rochelle Bond did. As Michael sat clean-shaven, hairstyled, and in a smart suit, a world away from his unkempt, rugged appearance during his arraignment hearing, Shapiro focused his opening statement on the suggested motive for Michael being the killer. In a counter-argument, he suggested it was actually Rochelle who had an unhealthy interest in demons and the occult, to the extent of being delusional. Michael is intelligent and has always been interested in world affairs. He is religious, and for years, every Sunday, he has attended Mass at the Sacred Heart Church in Quincy. He has studied the history of religion and the philosophy of good and evil, and he practices Reiki, a technique based on the principle that healing energy can be channeled by means of touch. He writes poetry and songs. The Commonwealth claims, however, that Michael was obsessed with the occult, with Satanism, and with demonology. According to the prosecutor, this obsession gave Michael a motive to kill Bella, that he killed her because he believed she was a demon. That is absurd. At the end of this trial, you will realize that Rochelle was projecting her own delusions onto Michael, and she blamed him for what she, in fact, did. Forensic pathologist Dr. Henry Niels, the chief medical examiner for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, was also called to testify. He told the court of the condition of Bella's small body at autopsy. He described the early stages of decomposition and how her body had been in the water for some time, making determining the exact cause of her death and the cause and age of the bruising of her body almost impossible. Michael's lifelong friend Michael Sprinsky was one of the first witnesses to take the stand. He was testifying against Michael, appalled and horrified at the story he had been told by Rochelle almost two years earlier. Michael Sprinsky had a long history of drug use, treatment centers, detox programs, and hospital admissions due to his addiction. The events of September 2015, when he learned that baby Bella, the little girl he had played with, cooked for, and watched movies with, in the early part of that year had been murdered, had changed his life. Michael Sprinsky had got himself clean from drugs and had turned his life around. He wanted to testify in this trial. He wanted to help get justice for Bella Bond. Michael Sprinsky told the court of McCarthy's interest in demonology and his belief he could exercise evil spirits. He spoke of dark modes that McCarthy would get into, 
talking for hours about the occult. During these times, Michael Sprinsky would remove himself from McCarthy's company, unwilling to sit and listen to his friend's rantings. He also told the court of conversations with both Rochelle and Michael together, where both talked about demons. On the third day of the trial, the jury didn't attend the courtroom. Instead, they boarded a bus and were taken to the three key locations in this case, to Deer Island where Bella Bond's small body was found, to the Four Point Channel where her body was dumped in the water, and to 115 Maxwell Street where Bella had been killed. The beauty of Deer Island shattered by the knowledge of that quiet, almost secluded section of beach being the final resting place of Bella Bond. The eyeline view from the section of the Four Point Channel, directly across from the imposing cruise terminal building to Deer Island, whose flags could be seen flying quietly in the distance. 115 Maxwell Street is just a building, yet inside on the ground floor, Bella Bond lived for almost two years of her short life, and it would be inside that building where her life would be cruelly taken. On June 2nd, day four of the trial that eagerly awaited testimony of Rochelle Bond began. Now, for the first time, the court and Bella's extended family would hear the only version of events being told as to how Bella Bond was murdered. State Prosecutor David Deacon said the night that Bella was killed was initially the same as any other night. Rochelle was trying to put Bella to bed. She had for the last few days been trying to transition Bella from a crib in Rochelle's room to a bed in her own bedroom. That night, Michael went to help to put Bella to bed. Something he had done many nights before did not cause Rochelle any concern. She stayed in the living room, she told the court, until she realized all was quiet in Bella's room. Wanting to check everything was all right, Bella had gone off to sleep. She began making her way down the hallway to Bella's bedroom. And what did you do? Um, so I walked up to the door and I cracked it. Oh, I, I stepped in. And what did you see when you stepped in? Um, he punched her in the stomach. Where was she? Laying in the bed. Were her feet pointed to you or her head pointed to you or were you seeing her side? Her feet were towards me. And you said that as you can, what, what was his position with respect to her, his physical position? He was at her feet. Was he standing up straight? No. How was he positioned? He was on one knee. And you said that he punched her in the stomach? Yes. With his fist? Yeah. How would you describe the force of that blow? I don't know. I just saw her bounce off the bed. What do you mean when you say bounce off the bed? Did she actually come off the bed? Yeah, she bounced. But did she bounce up and then come back down on the bed or actually bounce off the no, bed? No, she bounced up and came back down. Her whole body? Did you? Did she react to the... Other than her body bouncing, did she react to the punch at all? No. What did you do? So I... I, I think I yelled, what, what did you do? And Is that exactly what you yelled? What the fuck did you do? And did he respond to you? And he just kind of looked at me. How? Like, whatever. What did you do after you asked that? Um, I grabbed her. And, um, she wasn't breathing. So I tried to do CPR. 
How did she look to you when you went over to her to do CPR? Her head was um, swollen and gray. Gray? <laughs> As you were doing, how long did you do CPR for? I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> did you see any sign that it was working? No. You said that her hair, her head appeared to you to be swollen and her face was gray. Did you see any injury to her that you could see? No. Was there any blood? No. None? No. What, what was the defendant doing while you were doing CPR? I wasn't looking at him. When you stopped doing CPR, what did you do? So I, I picked her up to, to get out of there and... And he grabbed by the throat and he told me he killed me. Where were you when he grabbed you by the throat? I was, I was on the bed. I was standing up. Going to stand up. And what happened to Bella when he did that, Bella? Hell out of my arms. And what did he say to you? Did he? You said he grabbed your throat. Was that with one hand or two hands? Both. What did he say to you? He said he killed me. That's it, I'll kill you? Yes. Did you say anything to him? I couldn't after that. Let me ask you something. When you first saw her, and you saw her head was appeared to be swollen and she was gray, did you cry out? I yelled, what the fuck did you do? But after that, did you scream, help me? Somebody call an ambulance, help me? No, I just... Why not? I just tried CPR, I was hoping it would work, and then I'd get her out. When he put his hands around your neck, hands on your neck, and said he'd kill you, what's the next thing that happened? Um, I blacked out. Do you know how long you were blacked out for? I don't. Rochelle Bond said when she came around, she was on the couch in the living room of the apartment. She doesn't know how much time had passed since Bella had been killed. She said Michael gave her a shot of heroin in her neck, something she welcomed, so she couldn't think. How much time had passed since Bella's, uh, since Bella was killed? I don't know. When you say you don't know, I understand you may not have had a stopwatch on to do it, but are we talking minutes, hours, more? I don't want to say it was like the next night. So a full Day. 24 hours or close to it passed? Yeah. How could that be? How were you unable to know? To I was very sick and very just out of it. He At killed my child though. I wasn't well. <laughs> At that point when he threw the shoes down, you um, had you and he had any discussion of what had, what happened in the bedroom other than him saying he would kill you? Had you exchanged well, any words? When I said, you know, I, I, I said, what the fuck did you do? You fucking killed her. And he said, no, she was, it was her time to die. She was a demon. He said that? Yes. Other than that, had you had any conversation with him between the time of that she was killed and the time that he threw the shoes down? No. Rochelle went on to tell the court how she was forced out to Michael's car. 
Turning to look in the back seat, she realized her daughter's body was inside her large duffel bag that she had used for laundry. In the back footwell of the car were two barbell weights. So he opened the door for me to get in, and um, he went around to get in the front. And when I looked in the back, I saw my green duffel bag. And I can see her thighs are wet, like... It was her in there, and uh, I screamed something on him, and know what it was, and then he hit me. And Where did he hit you? Head. Are you indicating the side of your head? Yes. Where on the side of your head? Like about here. Do you know what he hit you with? I, I don't know. His hand. He had a hammer in there for me, too. I don't know. But you don't know what he hit you with? I think his hand. You say that you saw your duffel bag in the back seat? Yes. What color duffel bag was that? It was green. What did you use it for? Laundry. When you got in the car and saw the duffel bag and the contour of Bella's hip, what you thought was Bella's hip, did you see anything else in the area of the duffel bag? On the, on the back seat floor behind his seat was um, weights. Had you ever seen those weights before? No. What did they look like? They looked like old. Old freeways. After he hit you, did you lose consciousness or not? Yes, I Completely or partially? No, I did. And when you came to consciousness, what, where were you? I didn't know where we were exactly. Parked somewhere, and it was like a building. And I remember, like, floodlights. When you came to consciousness, where was the defendant? He was not in the car. Did you know where he was? Not at that time, no. Was the bag still in the back seat? No. No. When Jonathan Shapiro stood to cross-examine Rochelle, the courtroom leaned forward to ensure they didn't miss a word. Shapiro made sure Rochelle knew that she could still be charged with perjury should the jury not believe her story. A story that he claimed she made up. Shapiro was keen to question Rochelle on the gaps and inconsistencies in her statements about what happened. The evidence she had given on the stand before the court had broken for the weekend, compared to her initial statements to the police when she was arrested on September 18th, according to Shapiro, just didn't match. It's kind of hard to get your story straight when you're making it up, isn't it? I'm not making it up. However, on Friday, you forgot all about that most dramatic part of your story. What part? Where, where you say Mr. McCarthy said she was a demon. She had to die. I forget it. But you didn't tell it. No, I didn't. Know. Okay. Jonathan Shapiro called Nicole Marquis to the stand as a defense witness. Nicole had met Rochelle at the New Horizons Drug Treatment Facility in April 2015, just two months before Bella was killed. She remembered a conversation Rochelle had with her. Rochelle had said her parents had been abusive, hitting her with a hammer to beat the demons out of her. Now, she said, the demons were going into her daughter Bella to try to get her. Through this witness, Shapiro reaffirmed that Rochelle Bond herself talked of demons and did so in relation to her daughter. 
He then told the court of a journal entry written by Rochelle over the summer of 2015 after Bella had been murdered. The writing focused on all the children that were going missing in the world. Rochelle had written that the world leaders were working together to drink the blood of the children and eat their flesh. They did this, Rochelle wrote, to satisfy their demonic desires. While cross-examining Rochelle on the stand, Shapiro played an audio recording to the court. Recorded on Michael's cell phone in the months before Bella was killed. For the first time, the jury and everyone inside the courtroom heard Bella's voice ring out. Next, to take the stand on June 8th was Bella's father, Joseph Amoroso. Joseph did not blame Rochelle for Bella's murder. He blamed Michael McCarthy. Joseph Amoroso was clearly emotional when he told the court how he found out his daughter, who he had yet to meet in person, was dead. He had tried to become a father to her and be a consistent presence in her life, but he was three months too late. And when you went back to Ashmont, were you by yourself or with someone? I was by myself. So, how long were you back at Ashmont before something else happened? Not even a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, what, hap- what happened after a minute? She told me Bella was dead. Is that in person or over the phone? In person. How did you react? I flipped out. Um, and when you say flipped out, what do you what are you describing? I want to say I punched a concrete um, pillar. And what if anything did Miss Bond do when you flipped out? She punched me in my head and she told me to shut the fuck up before I get her bagged. In the final days of the trial, the jury heard testimony from the state police officers who were involved in the case on their investigations. There were three areas of evidence the prosecutor David Deacon focused on in attempts to prove that Michael McCarthy was the real killer of Bella Bond. The first was the weightlifting plates that Rochelle Bond had reported seeing in the back footwell of Michael's car. These weights, matching the description that Rochelle had given, had been recovered from the seabed at the Four Point Channel, where Bella's body had been dropped into the water. The laundry bag containing Bella's body had been weighted down using the plates in an attempt to stop her body coming back to the surface. Over the course of three weeks, Bella's body had come free from the bag and had been taken by the tides down through the channel before washing up on Deer Island. As part of their investigations and searches, state police had found weights of a similar description at Michael's father's plumbing shop. Those weights were newer, in much better condition, but otherwise identical. In the months after the murder, there had been exchanges of text messages between Rochelle and Michael, messages that had been recovered and were now part of the case. It was the text of July 16, 2015, the prosecutors were especially interested in. 
three weeks after Bella had been murdered, Rochelle was in a housing court that day fighting an eviction order due to being behind on her rent. Michael sent numerous texts to Rochelle, all of which the prosecution called aggressive and accusatory. Michael knew she was high on drugs, and his texts focused on telling Rochelle not to tell the courts she had a daughter to look after. In support of her case to keep the apartment, they might want to get DSS involved, he told her. The defense highlighted how these texts all talk of Bella in the present tense. That is because, they said, Michael didn't know Bella was dead. The prosecution took a different view. If DSS had already taken Bella into their custody three weeks earlier, Michael would not have been sending these messages. The texts were to make sure Rochelle didn't draw attention to Bella and to avoid the possibility of DSS getting involved, finding Bella missing and uncovering the truth. The final area of evidence was cell phone tower data that had been compiled and analyzed for both Rochelle and Michael's phones. Analysis of this data told investigators that on the day after Bella's body was found, June 26, 2015, both Rochelle and Michael's cell phones for the first time were in the seaport area of Boston, an area that has a direct line of sight to the spot where Bella's body had been put in the water. This, according to the prosecution, was Michael McCarthy checking if there was any police activity at the site after hearing that Bella's body had been found on Deer Island. The trial had been running for 14 days when it reached the closing arguments for both the prosecution and the defense. Jonathan Shapiro, acting for Michael McCarthy, addressed the jury first. He recounted the lies Rochelle had told various people about the whereabouts of her daughter, the housing court officials and the inspectors who came to check her apartment, people who she needed to believe Bella was still alive in order to keep her apartment and keep receiving the benefits money she was being paid to help look after Bella. Shapiro said the reason Rochelle told Michael Sprinsky her story on that September day was because she knew she was about to be found out. Rochelle was feeling the pressure. She knew Amoroso had already complained to DCF twice during Bella's first year of life, complained that her, his daughter was at risk of harm because of Rochelle's drug use. And Rochelle was afraid. She knew that if he complained again, the authorities would absolutely discover that Bella was dead and discover that she the little girl's mother was responsible. Is that the prosecution's theory? That Michael's motive to kill Bella was because he thought she was a demon? I suspect that that is too absurd for Mr. Deacon even to try to foist on you. I suspect that the prosecution may abandon that theory on which they have prosecuted this case from the very beginning because even they know it's too stupid. The devil is in the details, and Rochelle's story that Michael killed Bella was full of holes, gaping holes, ridiculous holes, unbelievable holes, because it wasn't true. Remember the audio recording of how Michael comforted and reassured little Bella about how to get rid of the monsters that plagued her nightmares. He told her, Honey, you can fight them with love. 
His advice did not work. In the end, the monster came for that little girl, and it was her mother. David Deacon followed with his closing statement. As Shapiro predicted, there was little mention of Michael's obsession with demons and this being a motive for him to kill a little girl. Deacon focused on the evidence he believed backed up Rochelle's version of events. The cell tower data that indicated Michael and Rochelle had traveled to the seaport district the day after Bella's body was found. The weightlifting plates that were used to weigh down Bella's body. Their connection to Michael's father's plumbing shop, which only Michael, not Rochelle, had a key for. In the house in court texts, messages Deacon said proved Michael was controlling Rochelle. She was under his intimidation and manipulation until she was able to finally tell the truth to Michael Sprinsky. The jury had heard from 34 witnesses. They had looked at 169 pieces of evidence, including harrowing photographs of Bella's body and the clothing she was found wearing. Now it was time for them to make their decision. The options they had available to them were not guilty, guilty of either first or second degree murder, or guilty of involuntary manslaughter. The jury took five days to reach their verdict. While they waited, both Michael McCarthy and Rochelle Bond sat in prison with their own thoughts on what the outcome would be. Only these two people knew what really happened to Bella Bond. Only they knew who was telling the truth. Now it would all come down to the decision of 12 individuals on the jury. On June 20th, 2017, they came back into the courtroom. Madam Foreperson, what say you to indictment number 15-11292, offense 001, charging the defendant Michael McCarthy with murder. Is he not guilty? Guilty of murder in the first degree under any theory? Guilty of murder in the second degree? Or guilty of involuntary manslaughter under any theory? Guilty of murder in the second degree. In the state of Massachusetts, there is an automatic life sentence for a conviction of second-degree murder. Unless granted parole, Michael McCarthy would now spend the rest of his life in prison. Judge Janet Sanders, who had presided over the case, decided on a parole term of 20 years. This means Michael will be eligible to apply for parole in 2037. The conviction and sentencing of Michael McCarthy ended this murder case. But what was still outstanding was the sentencing of Rochelle Bond for a role in her daughter's murder. In line with her plea agreement, on July 12, 2017, in the same courtroom where she had given her evidence the previous month, Rochelle Bond was sentenced to time served and two years probation. The rules of her probation stated that she could not use alcohol or drugs. She could not live with anyone using these substances she must submit to regular drug testing to ensure she's adhering to these terms. Conclusion Before the parole term was decided during Michael McCarthy's sentencing hearing, Joseph Omaroso took the stand once again, but this time it was to deliver a powerful and heartfelt impact statement on the murder of his two-year-old daughter. My name is Joseph Amoroso. <laughs> and I am the father of Bella Bond. Bella is the name I chose because it means beautiful, and that she was. It was August 6, 2012 at approximately 9 p.m. when my wife, Courtney, and I listened to Rochelle give birth to Bella over speakerphone. I will never forget the first sound Bella made while entering this world. 
She wailed and wailed, and right away I knew she belonged to me with a set of lungs like hers. Bella was a happy and innocent child full of light. She was very smart and learning things rather quickly. She loved Hello Kitty and she also knew how to make a pizza. Bella was a gift from God whose life was cut short at such a young age. But Bella was, still is, and always will be in my heart and soul. I believe that my daughter Bella would have excelled in college and grown up to be a very beautiful and successful woman that loved life. I can imagine her being a very loving, well-mannered and put-together mother that loved children. I was robbed of my chance to be a father to Bella. No verdict changes that, and no justice on earth fixes that grief. The impact of this senseless act of violence has taken quite a toll, not only for me, but also my family. My father is in Florida, but asked that I share the following statement with the court. Our family is grateful that the jury's verdict has brought justice for Bella. We are comforted in knowing that Bella is safe in God's hands. May God bring us all peace in this season of sorrow. This case is about drug addiction, lies, and hidden truths. It's about two dysfunctional adults who failed to love and protect an innocent girl. It is also a story about risk and the decisions and actions by the official bodies we have in place to protect children. There were opportunities in Bella's short life for the intervention which could have saved her life. Bella Bond should have lived a happy and secure life full of hopes and dreams. Instead, drug addiction, distorted thinking, and inaction ended her life at just two years old. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.